you uh, have your Bible with you, how about if you turn to Acts chapter 15? Pretty excited about what we're going to look at this morning. In the last few weeks, uh, we've been hanging around um, in uh, a particular verse, kind of using it as an anchor verse, and that, that was Romans 1.16, and it's kind of like Paul's statement, uh, his ownership. He says, I am not ashamed, in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, And we explored over the last two weeks why he was making that statement. He went on to say, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God unto salvation. We've got another anchor verse this morning, and it's also from Romans. I want to take you back to the book of Romans before we jump into Acts chapter 15. And let me show it to you. It's from Romans chapter 8. He says, I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And the church says amen, right? Yeah. Because that's such a huge anchor verse. That statement means your salvation, your guarantee of eternity with God is completely on God. Because you can't hang on to salvation. You can't do enough things to make God like you better. It's on God. I'm going to explain that thought in just a minute. We especially need to understand that. So, if you're holding a Bible in your hand this morning, or you're reading the words on the screen, and if you really believe what you hold in your hand is the Word of God, you've got to recognize the magnitude of that statement. You've got to recognize why God is saying that. Absolutely nothing can separate you from the love of God that is found in Christ Jesus our Lord. So if you're a believer in Jesus this morning, you've surrendered your life to Him, God says there's nothing created, there's nothing as powerful even as angels that can separate you from me. I've got you. That alone in itself should give you a great deal of security this morning. What I'm going to allow you to do, though, as we work through this text, is you get a chance to measure yourself how much you really believe that and whether or not you actually understand if you are a believer in Jesus this morning. So among all those inserts that are in your bulletin this morning from when you came in the door, there's one particular one I want you to pull out beside your study notes. I put study notes in there, but there's one particular one that's in there. It's a single page item, and at the very top, it says, how do I know for sure that I'm eternally saved? I want you to pull that out. If you didn't get a bulletin this morning when you came in, there's more of them stacked out in the atrium. You want to make sure you grab one. This particular page is something that I prepared over this last week. I don't want you to read it right now, though, right? Okay? I'm going to ask you to set it aside. I know some of you are just dying with curiosity. I really want to read that. Okay, you're going to get a chance. But what I want you to do is hang on to it and set it aside. How do I know that I'm eternally saved? We're going to come back to that, so set that aside. There's a few questions in there that you're going to be able to ask yourself. So we've looked at this anchor verse. You're going to get a chance to measure yourself. If you're looking for Happy Sunday at New Hope, this is your day. Because we've got a reason to be happy this morning you got a reason to celebrate. So let's move forward. We're going to address the most significant question of all. What must a person do to be saved? Let's go to Acts chapter 15 and verse 1 says this. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. 
And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. So some individuals are coming down from the mother church. They're coming down from the region of Judea, and they're carrying a plague with them. They've got a spiritual plague, and it's deadly. In the church world, we use this term heresy. If you're not familiar with that word, look it up in the dictionary and you'll find that it means a deviation from the truth. So we've got some individuals who are carrying this plague of false teaching with them. And false teaching has been a plague to the church throughout history, even through the first century. They're bringing a really familiar dogma. Some of you this morning were raised with that dogma. And the dogma sounds like this. It's the most devastating of all heresies. They're teaching that salvation is by works. Things that you can do to earn your salvation, to make God like you better. And that's false teaching. So what we're going to look at here is that these individuals have come without authorization. Matter of fact, James is going to point out to them, we didn't send these guys. They're self-appointed legalists. And here's how legalists think. I'm going to straighten out their theology. I'm going to teach them to think like I think. And they're not using God's Word to do it. So here's what they're going to present. They're presenting that there's no salvation apart from performing certain ritualistic behavior. Things that they have to do that are approved by them. The action that they're taking on is a severe threat, both to the unity of the church and to the truth of the gospel. They're bringing absolutely guns blazing as a threat to the church. Peter and Paul both wrote about individuals like this. Let me show you first, Peter, in, in Peter's writing first, what he had to say about false teachers. 2 Peter 2.1, it says this, There will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. Now, Peter's aware of that because he's run into individuals like that. They're alive and well today in the year 2015. Paul also wrote about them. He said this in Acts 20, verse 30. Men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples. So what are they doing? They're causing people to question, are they really saved? How do I know that I'm really a believer in Jesus Christ? So Paul and Barnabas had to take issue with them. We're told in verse 2, there's great dissension, meaning no little dissension. A big debate took place. So they're running to the protection of the believers And the brethren in the church decide this is too big for us to solve on our own. This is such a magnificent issue, you've got to go up to Jerusalem. So they've diagnosed the plague accurately. Just kind of as an aside, the conflict that you're about to see is actually inevitable. The sheer numbers of those who were Greek, Roman, African, Scythian, Asia Minor, those residents of those areas who are swarming into the church... The sheer number of them by the magnitude is intimidating to the Jews who are Christians. So that's why they're reacting the way they are. So given the explosive growth, the issue is no longer whether God, not God wants to save the Gentiles. It's how does he do it? And it's the very question that this council is meeting for. Now, just between you and I, if, if, if we're going to be honest, it's already hard enough to believe that salvation is real. People question throughout their entire walk. Doubting whether or not my salvation is real is common to man. I think it's one of the favorite haunts of Christians. 
to question, am I really a believer? Did God really forgive me of my sins? It's, it's hard enough when you ask that question yourself, let alone to have someone else come along and tell you, you're not really a Christian. You're not really a believer unless you do blank, 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 and blank. Well, that's why we're going to look at this, because we already know that we fall short of the glory of God. We already question ourselves. It's human nature to wonder if the forgiveness component really sticks with us. Let's move forward because Paul and Barnabas go up to Jerusalem. Huge issue for them to deal with. Verse 3, Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. Verse 4, When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. So they got like a 250-mile walk to get from Antioch, Syria, what we call today the area of Turkey, all the way up to Jerusalem. And during the walk, they're stopping and talking to local congregations about the evidence of the things that God's been doing. Now, when they arrive at Jerusalem, I'm just picturing in my mind this really touching scene. And in fact, I think it's very tender because you're seeing all the who's who of the New Testament gathered together in one location. You catch the gravity of this moment? It says the church is gathered together. The elders are gathered together. The apostles are gathered together. Who is that? Well, first of all, I'm thinking all the Marys are there. You've got Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary Magdalene, Mary who shows up at the tomb. There's a lot of Marys in the New Testament. This is 13 years after the church launched in Jerusalem. I'm thinking maybe John is still there. We know for sure James, the brother of Jesus, is there. Peter is there. Paul and Barnabas have come, and we're told they brought Titus with them. We've got an important gathering of individuals who've come to discuss this issue. But before they can begin, Paul and Barnabas jump in and they begin sharing what God has been doing through them, just like they did on the 250-mile journey to get there. Why are they doing that? They're emphasizing, and it's a very subtle emphasis, God's all over this. God's already bringing individuals to faith through grace, not because of works. Let's move forward. Verse 5, but some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up, saying it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. Verse 6, the apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. See, not everyone's excited in the room. They're not all excited about the things that Paul and Barnabas are sharing and their interpretation of it. Matter of fact, they're downright irritated. In a setting like that, like it would be this morning, if somebody stood up and began speaking, the room would be riveted to the attention of that person. Same thing in this setting. They're standing up because they're protesting. They're protesting what they've heard, and this is what they're saying. You've got to circumcise those people, and you've got to make them follow the law of Moses. What I want you to notice is it's not the morality of the law that's in question. See, throughout the first century church, things like the Ten Commandments, those were openly taught. Paul wrote constantly about the morality of the law. That's not what's in question here. It's the ritual of the law. That's what they're asking them to participate in. So they're hammering on the ritual of the law. So the apostles and the elders, they're coming together. Now, Luke doesn't give us an account of what took place in that meeting. He just kind of skips over it. 
And he helps us to understand that they came to a conclusion, though, because in verse 7, we're told Peter stands up. So Peter, who was chosen by Jesus to be one of the apostles, is the first speaker to take the stage. And what you're going to see is five witnesses. And each of them are very, very brief. So Peter's the first one. He stands up and he says, hey, remember in the early days of the church? So this isn't Acts chapter 2, this is Acts 15. So he's thinking back about 13 years in time to Acts chapter 2. Remember in the early day of the church, God spoke through me and He spoke directly to the Gentiles to bring them the word of the gospel. Uh, Do you remember in May when, if you were here, we studied Acts chapter 10? Peter went to someone's house. His name was Cornelius. Remember that guy? Cornelius is a Gentile. He was a Roman soldier. God brought him to faith. Cornelius didn't have to become a Jew to become a Christian. Peter's making the argument here. You have no right to require of the Gentiles what God has not. God's already settled the issue. So he steps it up a notch. Verse 8, And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as He also did to us. And He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. So Peter's demolishing the argument, and he's barely a paragraph into this. He's recognizing they've got the Holy Spirit. God knows the heart. So here's his reasoning. If you're a person who is a believer in Jesus Christ, do you possess the Holy Spirit this morning? Does the Holy Spirit possess you? Not a trick question, just a yes or no. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, do you have the Holy Spirit in you? Absolutely. So the opposite is true. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you don't have the Holy Spirit. Why is that so significant? Because God says He gives the Spirit to us as a pledge, as a promise. Meaning, if you're a believer in Jesus this morning, you are sealed for eternity. It's not dependent upon you. God sealed you. Look with me on the screen. 2 Corinthians 1.22, and I think you might want to write this reference down in your Bible. It says this, God who sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge... God can't lie, right, church? God cannot break His oath. And God says you are sealed if you have the Holy Spirit. So Peter's making a really brilliant observation here. It's very logical and very obvious, but here's his argument. Why would God confirm His presence in someone through faith in Jesus and cleanse their hearts only to have them question whether or not they're really saved? What are you doing to these people? So Peter asks a totally legit question, verse 10. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? How do you and I put God to the test? Because we can do it today just like they could do it. They could put God to the test. When we dare God, when we challenge God or question God to see if what He's already evidenced is really real, what He's already shown to be true is something that He actually meant. Meaning, here's what they're doing. They're demanding more of God, putting God to the test by saying, well, give us even more evidence. And he says, you're putting a yoke upon these people. If you've never seen a a yoke, it's something that was like a wooden collar that fit around an oxen, maybe a team of oxen, to direct them which way to go. And it literally would cause a chafing at the neck. Very heavy, heavy weight. He says, why are you putting this yoke upon them? Jesus used the same metaphor in an illustration when he's talking about the Pharisees. He said, you guys put such heavy loads on their shoulders. It says this, Matthew 23, 4, Jesus speaking, they tie up heavy loads and lay them on men's shoulders. It's absolutely foolish to expect the Gentiles to bear a burden that even the Jews themselves couldn't carry. 
So here's how clever and deceptive Satan is. Sitting in that auditorium that day, just like in this auditorium, I guarantee you there was not one single person who found their sins forgiven because of the law. There wasn't one single person in the auditorium that day who has the Holy Spirit in them because of the law. You can't be saved by the law. The law doesn't save you. It points you to salvation. So Peter closes with this amazing truth. And if you're looking for Happy Sunday, here it is. New Hope, you better get your amen on. Look with me at verse 11. But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. Cue amen. All right. That's a truth. We believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way, he says, as they also are. Excellent news. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. You want a reason to come back on Wednesday night and praise God? It's because you are not under the law. You are under grace. If you're not familiar with the term grace, it means God's unmerited favor. Given to you what you don't deserve. Given to me. Given to Mark what he doesn't deserve. God giving us forgiveness. But Peter's making a really emphatic statement here. He's saying there's only one way of salvation. It's through Jesus, through the grace of God. Very, very clear statement. Verse 12, all the people kept silent. And they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So Peter finishes speaking, and the entire assembly sits silent. I love that. What are they going to say in response? How do you repudiate what Peter has just brought? They're unable to contradict him, so they keep silent. So the conference started with an uproar, becomes quiet. So Peter sits down, and Paul and Barnabas get up on the stage. They're standing up now, and they begin talking about the signs and the wonders that God has done. See, their argument is different than Peter's. Peter came at it from a theological perspective. They're going to make an argument from the miracle perspective. Saying God's been doing things. What kind of things? Think about what we looked at last week, Acts chapter 14. Hey, you guys, you should have been in Lystra with us. We saw a man who was born lame at the name of Jesus get up and begin walking. Those kind of signs and wonders. Why is he emphasizing that? Because he's emphasizing the fact that God's been at work already. What is Paul and Barnabas been teaching. They've been teaching salvation by grace, and God's confirming that. I want you to see John MacArthur's observation about that. You see his quote on the screen. He says, Those miracles, signs, and wonders confirmed that Paul and Barnabas were God's spokesmen. They taught salvation by grace, and the miracles God performed through them confirmed the truthfulness of that teaching. That's really consistent with Hebrews chapter 2, verse 4. If you were here during the study of Hebrews, you're familiar with what I'm talking about, but just let me put it on the screen so that you remember this. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 4, God also testifying with them. How's He doing it? By signs and wonders and various miracles. See, that your salvation this morning is by grace alone is stamped with God's approval. He's given the authority to Paul and Barnabas to go out and teach what they're teaching because He approves of it. Here's the converse of that the legalist cannot produce any miracles whatsoever they can't produce anything to give evidence of their teaching 
because God doesn't confirm false teaching. God only confirms His Word, and His Word is that you are saved by grace. Let's move forward because Paul and Barnabas are about to sit down, and a fourth witness is getting up. Verse 13, after they stopped speaking, James answered, saying, Brethren, listen to me. Simeon, and that's the Aramaic form for Peter's name, Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. With this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. Now he's going to quote the Old Testament. He's quoting Amos here. Verse 16, After these things I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. So track with me. Peter's witness number one. He's already taken the platform. Paul number two, Barnabas number three, James number four. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus. James earlier, who was killed, we saw in the book of Acts, was one of the original 12 chosen. This James is one of those who thought Jesus was crazy when he proclaimed himself to be the Son of God. He actually stood outside a building one day asking Jesus to come on out. We're going to carry you away to the funny farm. But now he's come to faith. This James is the son of Mary, Jesus' own mother. It's Jesus' half-brother, and he's now an elder in the church in Jerusalem. He's not just an elder. He's the senior pastor, and the senior pastor stands up. He's recognized as the pillar of the church, and he reminds them of what they've just heard. Peter just talked to you about how God has concerned himself with the Gentiles, so he's going to call the fifth witness, and the fifth witness is the very Word of God. That's why he quotes Amos. He says, the prophets agree. With everything that you are seeing and hearing about, the prophets agree, meaning the Old Testament agrees with this, the very Word of God, meaning this this morning. Even God's Word in the Old Testament foresaw that salvation would be by grace, even though it was a mystery to people to understand it at that period of time. So James, the senior pastor of the church, verse 19, is issuing a proclamation. Verse 19, Therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles. That therefore is something you want to circle in your Bible. That therefore is highly significant to you and I and every single believer. Because what he's saying is the evidence is so conclusive. Based on everything that you've seen, I'm going to give a pronouncement Stop troubling the Gentiles. Those who are believers in Jesus are there because of grace. Here's the opposite of what he's saying. Keeping the law, observing rituals, is not what produces salvation. Now that may be new news to some of you this morning. I'll put it in modern language. It doesn't matter how many times you walk in the door of the church. It doesn't matter whether or not you take communion enough times. You can't do enough things to make God love you more than He already loves you. You are sealed for eternity. 
neither life nor death nor principalities or powers nor things present nor things to come can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Now let me help you with this if you're struggling with the ritualistic thinking. Some of you were raised in ritualism, I understand that. Certain denominations that perhaps you were part of taught that you had to do certain things. So let's just pick on baptism for a minute because I know some of you were told you were baptized as a baby, therefore you're sealed for eternity. You're good to go. You got your gold ticket. Baptism does not save you, church. Jesus saves you. Let me back that up from Scripture. Jesus is on the cross. It's 3 o'clock in the afternoon. There's a thief on his left and a thief on his right. The thief on his left is hurling insults at him. The thief on his right turns to him and says, Will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? Does Jesus in that moment say, you know, you haven't been circumcised, so no, you're out. (laughs) You know what? If you had gone to enough of the sacrificial rituals, I'd probably consider it. Or how about this? We're going to have them pull you off the cross and baptize you and put you back on the cross. And by the way, when you're down there, take communion. No. Jesus turns to that man and says, this very day, you will be with me in paradise. Why? Because Jesus saves. Rituals don't save. Jesus saves. So these declarations are true. So at this very moment, it seems logical that we should be looking at Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 just to remind ourselves. Look with me on the screen. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you are saved, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Because God took away the boast factor, right? I did this and this and this, and therefore God's going to let me in. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 stands contrary to that. Salvation is only by God's grace through faith alone, apart from any human effort. Have you heard that enough times this morning? You're going to hear it a few more, okay? Let's move forward. Now, with this major issue resolved, they're going to move their attention towards this really practical issue. You find it in verse 20. But that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. For Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Here's what's going on. James sees a problem coming. And the problem is coming in the form of liberality. Some people take their liberty in Jesus to extremes, far beyond what was intended. So here's his concern, not only that the Jews not trouble the Gentiles, but also that the Gentiles not trouble the Jews. So a first century Christian Jew would have a really hard time being in a worship service with a Gentile Christian who had no standards of morality in their life without understanding that God has standards. They're going to have a very hard time, difficulty in worshiping. So here's the danger. The Gentiles who are reveling in their freedom in Christ may begin exercising that reveling and put the Jewish believers under some degree of thinking they've got to exercise their liberty too. So James is looking forward. He says there's four things, just minimums, that you need to abstain from. 
Let's just go through those four things really quickly and, and why he did it. He said those things contaminated by idols, in verse 20, from fornication, from what is strangled, and from blood. Now, before I answer why he said those four things, let me ask you this question. Do you have things in your life that you abstain from for the benefit of a brother or sister in Christ or maybe a non-believer who's watching you? There are things, and it's a good thing, there are things, Scripture says, that you can abstain from to the benefit of others to keep yourself from being a stumbling block. I have things in my life. Lori has things in her life. As husband and wife, we've agreed to abstain from certain things so that we don't become a stumbling block to people who are watching us. There's some things you may need to evaluate in your own life, but James is writing here. These are some decrees that are a minimum in respect of the fact that you're worshiping with brothers and sisters in Christ who have a different mindset. So he lists these four things. Why these four? Well, meat offered to idols. I mean, that was absolutely an abhorrence to the Jews to think of anything being offered to an idol and then being consumed. Well, here's what the Romans did and the Greeks and the Gentiles. They would offer meat to these false gods on an altar, but they wouldn't cook it. And after they'd offer it to them, they'd take it back to the market and they'd make it for sale. So there's the A-grade meat you could buy, and and then you could go for the stuff that had been offered to idols. You could buy it on a discount, right? And you could eat that meat. So it's like the hormone-free and the non-hormone, or or hormone and non-hormone, yeah, whatever. Anyways, so they've got these options, and they're they're participating in this, and they're saying, just stop doing that. You're going to cause your brothers and sisters in Christ who are Jewish to stumble. They aren't going to want to worship with you. And stay away from the strangled meat. What's that? Well, that's meat that animals have been slaughtered in a way that non-Jewish, it leaves the blood in it. And for the Jews, the blood was just totally off limits because God says blood is holy. It's sanctified. There's life in the blood. So that's why he lists those three. But there's a fourth one he throws in. This is fornication. Now, he just puts it out there in such a simple statement. What is that? Well, it's a Greek word for porn, porneia is, is the word we use for porn or pornography, meaning anything that's outside the bounds of marriage, ungodly sexual behavior. So he says those things, avoid those. Why? Well, the Jews got a really high standard. All their life they've been raised with God's standards. Matter of fact, if you want to see God's standard for sexual behavior, Go to the book of Leviticus. You don't have to read the whole book, but just read chapter 18. Write this down, actually, if, you might, if you've never read it before. Read Leviticus 18, verses 6 through 23. And God's got standards laid out really, really clearly about His expectations. And that's not the only place in the Bible. Leviticus 18, 6 through 23, it's an Old Testament book. So God says, this is what my standards are. Well, the Jews know what God's standards are. But if you're Greek... If you're Roman, <laughs> Gentile, African, Scythian, depending on where you came from, your standards are not quite at that level. I mean, they came from a really lax background. So James is just saying, these are the minimums. Just avoid these things that are going to cause people to stumble because your brothers and sisters in Christ are going to really have a difficult time worshiping with you. Move forward with me into verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brethren, and they sent this letter. So James provides a solution. There's no jeopardy to the fellowship of the church, and they pen this little letter, which is just a paragraph long, and it's really, really formal. 
And I'm not going to break it down for you. We're just going to read it really quickly. But let's look at it. It says this. The apostles and the brethren who are elders to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia who are from the Gentiles, greetings. Since we have heard that some of our number to whom you we gave no instruction have disturbed you with their words unsettling your souls, it seemed good to us having become of one mind to select men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. Verse 26, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials, that you abstain from the things sacrificed to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication. If you keep yourselves free from such things, you will do well. Farewell. That's pretty interesting. These guys have spent weeks walking all the way to Jerusalem. Weeks walking all the way back, and what they deliver is just a paragraph that says, we're not going to put the burden on you of the law. We may have grown up with it, but we're not putting that on you because God doesn't require that of you. So here's why I find this so interesting. His expression to them is this. We've heard some people have come to you whom we gave no instruction to. They didn't come with our authority. And they have disturbed you and they have unsettled your souls. There's only one Greek word in your notes this morning. It's the word terasso. You're going to see it on the screen in just a moment. That particular Greek word has this definition behind it of causing someone to lose their peace, meaning it creates fear. We have heard some people came to you without our authority and they have taken away your peace and they have replaced it with fear. This word is so interesting because it was not necessarily a biblical word. It was borrowed from the world of finance and from military campaigns. Tarasso was used of someone who went through bankruptcy and lost everything. You imagine if tomorrow the stock market doesn't drop 500 points, but it drops 17,000 points and you're wiped out. If you woke up tomorrow and you didn't have a home, your car was taken, what if everything's gone? It's Tarasso. What if you're in a city and a military campaign takes place and that army sweeps in and destroys everything you know? It's Tarasso. Why is James using that word? Because the false teachers who have brought heresy to this church in Antioch have brought destruction through their false teaching to the degree that these people have totally lost their peace that surpasses understanding that I belong to God through Jesus. And they've replaced it with fear. So they're letting them know, not just my words here, but we're going to clarify it through Paul and Barnabas and Judas and Silas. Just listen to them. Well, let's close the story here. Verse 30, so when they were sent away, they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, so they got the whole church, right? Whole church is coming together. All three services are meeting. They're waiting to hear this news. They gathered the congregation together. They delivered the letter, verse 31. When they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. 
So you have a reason to come to things like praise on Wednesday night here at the church. You have a reason to celebrate and rejoice because our salvation is in Christ alone. And he has removed all the guilt. That's why they're rejoicing. Because they've been told salvation is through faith. Now hear this, the opposite is true. Legalism does not produce encouragement. It just doesn't. Legalism produces fear. It's the word of His grace that's able to build you up. Legalism produces fear and guilt. God's word of grace brings you comfort and hope. That's why this is Happy Sunday, church. You have a reason to be happy. Verse 32 ends the story. Judas and Silas, also being prophets themselves, encouraged and strengthened the brethren with a lengthy message. Pastors love that verse right there. (laughs) Verse 33, after they had spent time there, they were sent away from the brethren in peace to those who had sent them out. But it seemed good to Silas to remain there. So Barnabas and Paul, they're about to pick up where they left off. Verse 35 ends this way. But Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch, teaching and preaching with many others, also the word of the Lord. So they're teaching and preaching. I know what they're preaching. They're preaching Jesus Christ. They're preaching God come to earth, crucified on the cross, dead, buried, resurrected, and coming again. They're preaching that. What are they teaching? They're teaching it's all by God's grace. They're preaching and teaching salvation in Jesus Christ by the grace of God. Luke adds to it a little detail. He says many others joined them in this because that's good news. That's the kind of thing you want to tell people. So what you've just seen is the church has survived its greatest assault yet. Some of you have been here for months since I started teaching Acts chapter 1. And you might be tempted to think, well, maybe the greatest assault seemed like persecution. What about, what about when they stoned Stephen and the church was dispersed? Or what about when they killed James? No, the greatest persecution yet, the greatest challenge is false teaching. Satan's attempt has been to split the church. And so he's injected heresy. And they've survived. Why? Because they brought the truth of God's Word. So let me bring you full circle all the way back around. I want to go back to Romans 8. In light of what we've just studied, Romans 8, verse 38 says... For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I am not one who is guilty of adding things to God's Word. Revelation warns us about that. But if I was to inject something into there, I would say, nor legalism nor rituals, nor man-made rules. Because they've really crept up over the last 2,000 years, haven't they? It caused some of you to feel like you're not really saved. When God's Word says, you surrender your life to me, you recognize that Jesus is Lord. Your sins are forgiven because it's on me. See, it's not dependent upon you. God keeps you. What you're seeing on the screen, church, only God can do that. 
if it was dependent upon you and I, would we not fall short? Richard Linsky is a famous theologian. He's been dead a long time. But he said, if, if Jesus carried us 999 miles and our journey was 1,000 and the last mile was dependent upon us, we'd still fall short because we can't get there. You can't do enough things to stand before a holy God. That's why you need Jesus as your intercessor. So I want to remind you, if you're a believer in Jesus this morning, the phrase my friend Rich Bruce likes to use, you are who God says you are, and God says you're redeemed. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. Just because you don't do the rituals that other people do, God says you're redeemed and you belong to Him, that you're complete in Jesus, I'm going with God. I take His word. He's been around a whole lot longer than some of these individuals who are telling you you've got to do rituals. Let's, let's take that thought one step further. If you're new to church this morning, maybe this is the first time you've ever heard this information, and perhaps you've been waiting a lifetime by saying things like this to yourself, You know, I I want to come to God, but I've got some things to fix in my life first. God says, come just as you are. I'll take you exactly the way you are. You don't fix things first to make God like you better. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He loves you. He's waiting for you to surrender your life to him. So you got this little sheet this morning. It's been burning a hole in your side. And it says, how do I know for sure that I'm eternally saved? I'm not going to go through the whole sheet with you. This is what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to find some quiet time today just between you and God and read through this. But here's what I am going to do. There's five questions in there that I'm going to read to you. And I'm I'm, I'm thinking you're probably going to find them real easily yourself because they're in bold print. But just let me go through these first three. How do I know for sure that I'm eternally saved? The first three, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you believe that He died on the cross for your sins and for your salvation? Is it your desire to follow Him all the days of your life? Your Bible reads just like mine, and my Bible says if that's you, if you can answer yes to all three of those, you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Now the favorite haunt of Christians And many of us live with it. I hear from people constantly. After the 9 o'clock service, many people responded the same way. After the Saturday night service, many people responded the same way, saying, you know what, that's the thing that's been haunting me my entire life. Am I really saved? Did God really forgive me? Because my my sins in my past are horrendous. Many people are looking for an experience, trying to identify whether or not they're really saved. When God says you already are, because God says you're saved, you're saved, right? Okay? But many people are looking for identifiers, so flip the page over and go back to the back two questions. Ask yourself this. Am I further along in my walk with God than I was a year ago? Meaning, are you maturing in Christ? The second one. Do I find myself troubled by sinful things that previously didn't bother me? Why do I ask those two questions? Because that's the evidence of the Holy Spirit working in you. A man of the world, a woman of the world who has no interest in the things of God are not sensitive to those things. Am I progressing in Christ? Is the Holy Spirit convicting me of sin? 
You point to those things as evidence, even if it's in seed form. That's God working in you, drawing you more into the likeness of Christ. The reason I wrote that sheet is because of what you're going to see in the very top in 1 John 5, when John wrote, same John who wrote the book of Revelation, he wrote, I write these things that you may know. He wrote that in the first century, church. The first century, people were living with doubts whether or not they were really saved. And 2,000 years later, people are still dealing with the same thing. So I encourage you, read through this and discover what it really means to be saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we recognize that what you have brought before us this morning in your written word builds confidence and joy encouragement, and strength for the soul. I pray that you send us out with that. And for those who are wrestling with the thought of whether or not they're really saved this morning, I pray that you come around them with open arms. Help them to settle this issue once and for all. Maybe even over a lunchtime conversation with a friend. God, we would ask that you would do this because you love us intimately. It's in Jesus' mighty name that we pray. Amen.